0: In this Special Edition series, we go further than ever before to showcase the playbook which has changed software sales. The legacy of John McMahon and the 33 CXOs transcends their individual success. In this series, we explore the most exciting and dynamic leaders that are shaping the future of our industry. These leaders have all worked directly with John or the 33 and are keeping the torch burning brighter than ever. They have learned the playbook and building their own legacy. In this unique series, we consider the concepts which allow for the playbook to thrive in the modern world.
1: Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis, and I'm joined by my co-host Oli Kune. Hey, everyone. And we're absolutely delighted to welcome Luke Rogers. Luke,
2: welcome. Guys, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome to the
1: show, Luke. Welcome to the show, Luke. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, In the way of an introduction, um, Luke, you're currently global sales leader at one of the most disruptive and high potential startups, a company called Instabase. Congratulations, first of all, because I know it's a, a recent appointment, but just tell us a little bit about uh, your role there and a little bit about um, about the company.
2: Yeah, no worries. I joined the company three months ago as VP of sales and um, my job really is to grow the go-to-market organization, set the board strategy for the way we do that um, and be you know, the ultimate architect of, of how, we, how we get the company to market. Uh, I think what's, what's really exciting, because most people will understand what it takes to grow a sales organization, we can get into the details of that, is, is why, why this company. And I don't know if that's somewhere you want to go right now, but I can certainly share some thoughts.
1: Yeah, so I think it would be good for us to, if you could just tell us a little bit about what Instabase is and you know, what,
2: what it is and, and what kind of impact you think it can have in, in the world. Yeah, I think if, if I start with the end in mind, right, the vision for Instabase is to make computers work for people. Um, what does that mean? That doesn't really mean anything to anyone right now, but think about this. You guys have both got smartphones, I assume. Yeah. And you want to do something like you want to order pizza. What do you do?
0: Delivery.
2: Deliveroo. Bang. And what is delivery? An app. It's an app, right? And so since the advent of smartphones pretty much every, every type of thing that we need, we now conceptually think about it as an, as an app, right? Like we want to order a taxi, we, we go to Uber, right? We want to order some pizza, you go to Deliveroo, you want to do your online banking, you go to your online banking app. Now, in the world of enterprise, in a, in a company, in a large bank or insurance company or retailer, that same sort of app store model doesn't exist. Why not? Because no one's created it yet. And enter Instabase, right? <laughs> so if you think about very few companies have fundamentally ever changed the, uh, the whole industry and everyone that's looking to do what I've just done is join a generational disruptive company and I spent nine months searching for it. But the biggest, the, the products that have had the biggest impact in the world, they're all operating systems. Think about it. They're Windows on desktop right, or Mac OS or it's iOS or Android or mobile. The, those those operating systems have changed the way that we work with computers and the way that we fundamentally do you know, business or the way that we go about our personal lives. And if the PC revolution brought us desktop computers that were equipped with word processors that ran on Windows or calendars or spreadsheets that we could now all of a sudden do things, um, then the smartphone revolution came and all of that was not just having it in one beautiful form factor that sat in our pocket, but this app store that everything became an app. Desktop computing never made that leap. We're all still using desktop operating systems like Windows or Mac OS, right? And they're all still fundamentally the same as they were 10 years ago. You have to get armies of developers to create highly bespoke software for really complex business processes like trading systems or... Um, you know, warehouse management, all of these things are typically written in endlessly complicated, massive programs that are you know, m- many, many, many lines of code with huge software development teams. Nobody has given these organizations the ability to deliver an app store-like experience to their employees. But what if a bank could build an app that could automatically verify customer income in a fraction of a second? That's what Instamist has been able to do.
1: I mean, it's a fantastic. Um, yeah, you know, we've done some research into the company. It's truly remarkable, and the potential is astounding. You know, it's 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 just the, the sky and and the universe is the limit in terms of just how disruptive it can be if, if it gets anywhere near. You know, the potential of of of, of what we we're speaking about, and you know, it's very exciting. Um, and you are a very exciting appointment, Luke. I I am actually going to state a very obvious fact, and that's you know, you're you're still in your tender years, you're, you're just 33 years old, Luke. Um, yeah. and, and I don't think that's a discredit because we're going to find out a lot about what a remarkable career you've had, um, which has enabled you to really get to this point at such a staggering age. And I think um, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's an absolutely incredible um, journey and a great story and, and really looking forward to kind of going through that. Um, now, normally We would start at the beginning, but actually, we're not going to do that, Luke, because the the early part of your career, there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit, and you did some remarkable things at a young age, but I want to talk about that a bit later on when we start talking about ICE criteria, because I think your journey really epitomizes that, and so I, I kind of want to go a little bit further forward and get to where it really started to become very interesting where, um, you know, you started to apply a lot of what you had kind of had early on a lot of that potential and that's app dynamics. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about, um, how important was app dynamics for you?
2: Well, firstly, thank you uh, for the kind words. Secondly, um, I don't feel like I deserve the, uh, you just gave me, I, I really have to give that thanks to all the people that took an interest in my development along the way for why I am where I am today. And a lot of what I'll, the way I'll answer this question is to talk about those people. Um, you know, I was 25 years old. Um, I, I was trying to leave IBM for the second time in uh, in 2013. I'd, I'd gotten so bored that I'd set up a company while I was there, which they then told me I had to shut down or they'd sue me. So I, I, was, I was pretty confident that, that that was no longer the right environment for me. Um, so uh, so there, then I started the search. And um, you know, you guys are in the recruitment game. And I, and I worked in software sales recruitment for a while too. And it's hard. It's really hard to pick to pick a great company, right? Especially when you've never done it before, you don't know what you're looking at, and you don't know who you're looking for. And I didn't really know how to set my criteria at the time, and so I really just went on instinct, to be honest. And I partnered with a recruiter that I actually, funnily enough, used to work for, and she would send me all of these different companies and say, "Hey, this is really hot," and I'm like, "Okay, great." Um, and then all of a sudden, she sent me this one company one day he said it's a company called App dynamics you should really check it out okay what what's so special about this well they just appointed jeremy duggan as the vp of emia and funnily enough all i could think about was all of the stories of all of the horrible things that this person had apparently done to people in his life and the people that i'd met along my way so far who basically would tell me never to ever, ever meet him, go anywhere near him. He's the worst thing that will ever happen to you. And all I wanted to do was meet him. And so I did, drove out to this hotel that he would meet at. And uh, I remember it very clearly, the snowy day out in Surrey and um, pulled up and there he was. And I remember this distinct feeling of, I I finally found... The kind of person that I need to be around. And and this thought went through my head of all these things that people had said to me, don't go and meet him, was that if you were somebody that wanted to coast through life and have an easy life and just wanted to be mediocre, he would be the worst thing to ever happen to you. And then I thought, these are the people that have been telling me these things. And then I thought to myself, but if you if you want to make something of yourself, if you want to work hard, you want to put a bit of blood, sweat, and tears into something and and achieve your potential, this is it. This is the guy. And so that was, that was it, guys. Like, you know, it, I remember this just moment and then I went skiing for a week and I just didn't stop thinking about it for a whole week. And I was like, I just want to do this. I just want to go and jump off a cliff with this guy and give it a go. And I just put everything into getting that job.
0: Brilliant. And... There's always interesting stories. And I know that Jeremy and a few of the others have got some interesting interview techniques, that interview itself. Is there anything you can tell us about it?
2: Oh my God. Oh, I'll (laughs) never forget it. Uh, It's a different hotel in Surrey, uh, but you know, a week later and I get there and I've done my prep and I've got my, you know, all my research in my binder and I'm fully suited up and ready to go. All my questions I get there and I say, hey, would you like a copy of my CV? He goes, yes, thanks. i give him a copy of my CV. And he sits there and he looks at it and he leans back and he looks at me and he looks at it and he looks at me again and says, why the fuck would I ever hire you?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I said, well, what are you looking for? And he said, good question. And he told me, Intelligence character, coachability, and experience. And I said, okay, well, would you like me to spend the next forty-five minutes explaining why I've got all of those things? I said yes. I said, well, what do you mean by intelligence? And I systematically qualified. Qualified everything down to the furthest possible point that I could distill it to. And then every time I'd say, okay, so part of intelligence is IQ and you look for academic track record. You look for pursuits outside of work. You look for this and you look for this. Have I satisfied that criteria? Yes. Can I move on? Yes. And I just went through it like a business meeting. And by the end of it, I said, I really want this job. Can I have it? And he said, yes.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. And wait, how did you prepare for that interview? How did you know that that was the way it was going to go? Or was that just for your own research, looking at you know, information online? You know,
2: um, the the recruiter that I was working with um, had known him a while and he thought that she'd coached me quite extensively for that that meeting. Yep. And she'd give me advice, but what she said was run it like a business meeting. Right. And so that's what I did. Like, right? If you're going to go into a business meeting with a CIO, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to set an agenda and you're going to ask them if there's anything not on the agenda that they want to cover and what they are looking to get out of the meeting. And if you give them that, then... What would that mean? Yep. And I just wanted to be, you know, as indicative, of, like experience didn't matter. There I was. I'd been five years in two massive tech companies. I knew I was the antithesis of what he was looking for. So I just needed to prove to him that experience was irrelevant, right? And that I also wasn't taking anything for granted. Why, was he the, why were you the antithesis
0: to
1: what he was looking for?
2: In your from, from everything that I'd heard, Jeremy was looking for... A player, software sales guys. I had never sold software in my life. I'd, I'd been, I'd been, you know, a graduate at Cisco selling hardware, and then I'd been selling IBM Global Services for you know a year and a half. And even, even like the kind of university I went to, I went, I went to a good university, but I didn't go to a you know top twenty university. Um, I grew up, grew up, you know, in 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 the north. I didn't play a lot of competitive sports because I was. I was not, not the right, uh, let's say, body type for that growing up as a kid. Um, and so all of these things I'd heard about, oh, he looks for people that have been the captain of the football team that, that went to Oxbridge or, you know, that went, went to top, top universities and got top degrees um, and that, you know, they're like elite, massive, tw- 200% plus earners in, in software. Like he was building out his initial three hires for AppDynamics. Like these, these were big hires for him. I thought he wanted those kind of people
1: yeah it's interesting actually because um you know when you look at the ice criteria actually the, the the e part which is the experience part is further down the further down the list for a reason and perhaps you didn't have the experience but i think you are doing yourself a bit of a discredit because when we go into the previous uh, you know into what you were doing at 15 and, and beyond i think there's definitely a lot uh, to kind of reinforce that character so um we're we're obviously going to go into that in a a bit more detail but so you joined in
2: 2013 how did you do in your first two years well again i was very lucky to work for him directly um and i remember the feeling of turning up to this bracknell office with no windows and uh and you know exercise balls to sit on and a couple of beanbags in the corner and his office was just full of t-shirts and I remember speaking to one of the guys who, had, who who'd been there originally. He was kind of like the first sales rep before Jeremy, and said to him, "Oh, you know, how do I? How can I be successful here?" And he was, "Oh, you just need to do three-year deals. We've just been doing one-year deals. Just do three-year deals; you should be fine." TCB comp plan. I was like, mm, "That doesn't sound like that. That that's all there is to it." Anyway, then I had my one-to-one with Jeremy, and he started to to explain this sales process that you know he'd he'd put into practice. Uh, Blade Logic, and then at BMC and and uh, Essential Software, and I remember thinking to myself, "I'm just going to leave all my bags at the door because all these stories I've heard of all these reps just in the last forty five minutes making million dollars a year. If I just need to do that, which I have no idea how to do that right now, but if that's what I need to do, I'm just going to do that and not do anything other than that." I'm just going to follow his process exactly. And so I just made a commitment in that, in that moment that all I was going to do was just be like a zealot dis- disciple of this process, learn it better than anyone else, live it more than anyone else. And as a result of that, and you know, not giving up, my first two years were pretty good. I did 224% of my quota the first year. And then the second year, I did two hundred and seventy percent, and both years I did the biggest deal worldwide. So, so
0: and just can tell. You. A, I was going to say, how steep a learning curve was that? You know, what did you have to put in there? Put in to be able to to learn that playbook.
2: Everything, mate. I mean, that was that was one of the the toughest years of my life. Like, I, I gave right. I gave everything to that. But I've always believed in life. In um, people should be given the opportunity for reinvention, you know, and we can talk about that a little bit more if you like, when we go kind of through my story, but I don't think anyone needs to be the person that they are today forever. Everyone else should, everyone should have the opportunity to be able to change. And and I decided when I was joining Epidynamics that that was going to be another big moment of change in my life. Um, I went through a lot of changes with my friends. I changed my diet. I changed my exercise regime um, changed. I think I just changed a lot of my mindset. Like I'd gone from, you know, a place of just kind of coasting around in IBM with these people that didn't really want to work very hard to, you know, an environment where I looked around and everyone was just running as fast as they possibly could. And I knew I needed to train. Um, but the days were long, like, you know, and there were, it, it was just a do whatever it takes kind of mentality. You know, if I needed to be on a plane at four o'clock in the morning, I would do it. You know, I did multiple day trips to san francisco um i did multiple day trips to johannesburg i did multiple day trips to new york and it was you know I, w- I remember one day running a tough motor race being covered in shit and then getting on the plane to new york in economy going to present to the cio of ubs and then coming back again and uh and not taking my wallet because i'd left it in my car so <laughs> having to uh, you know it just like m- my mind my mind was spinning but i I just knew that if I followed this process and I just kept going and I just kept pipeline generating and I just kept champion building and I just kept doing more and more POVs and meeting more and more economic buyers, it would happen. And when it started to happen, then it became addictive because I was like, the the formula works. So I'm just going to keep putting more into the top. Why did you believe it before you'd actually experienced it? I had no reason not to. Um, there was no upside in my mind to fighting it or, or approaching it with any form of skepticism, right? Here, here's this guy that's done, you know, PTC, <laughs> Essential, Blade, BMC, right? Or billion dollar plus exits. Like just an absolute legendary track record of success with leaving behind a legacy of hugely successful salespeople. Why would I ever come in and, and doubt it what 's the upside of that
0: incredible absolutely incredible because a thousand i've read in your in your in your profile previously what we spoke about conducted a thousand customer meetings yeah. and won over sixty four net new logo enterprise deals in was it within two years or was that in a year
2: uh, it was in two years, yeah, so we, you know we because we were very metrics driven right we would look at number of new business meetings you know, number of closed new logos, number of, you know, POVs, we had, you know, had all that data going back all the way to the yeah. beginning. And, you know, when you look back at it like that, and you're like, wow, you know, a thousand new business meetings in two
0: years. That's quite a lot, actually. It's, it's insane. Absolutely insane. It's, well, well uh, the numbers. What are- was?
2: And what was amazing was that the, there was such high quality standards to them as well, right? You know, we would all be very accountable to what was a new business meeting, what wasn't. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And we would really, really hold ourselves to that standard of not calling a coffee, you know, at lunchtime with, with a prospect, a new business meeting, because if we weren't turning up with a value pyramid, if we weren't turning up with a tailored demo and we weren't turning up, having done a discovery call, then it wasn't a new business meeting. So um, yeah, it was just amazing, but he was, he was there. He went, so many meetings I remember meeting him at seven o 'clock in the morning at Costa in Liverpool, Liverpool Street you know just ready to go into UBS at yet you know yet another ungodly hour of the day and I think that 's what great sales leadership is, is is when managers are with you in the trenches
0: hmm.
1: so, so tell us a little bit about the playbook um, that was kind of enforced there um, you know t- Tell us a, l- a little bit about some of the different elements that jeremy and the, and, the, and the team were kind of
2: rolling out yeah so um enforced is obviously a way of putting it you know and and certainly as you become a leader and and you you try and take this playbook and you um you you know you make it your own inspire is certainly what we 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 strive for right we try and inspire the playbook (laughs) (laughs) um i think definitely in today's climate as well it's really important that people buy into things i just don't think these environments of compliance are are really you know around anymore but really what it was, was believing that A plus B plus C plus D plus E plus F equaled a million dollar paycheck, right? And, and knowing that like, obviously a million dollar paycheck means different things to different people right? Like for me at the time, all like all I cared about was ba- buying a Tesla, right? And, and that's what I did. Like I bought a Tesla. It was the first shipment off the boat. It was like one of the first Teslas in the UK. And I was like, yes, I did it. I've made it. Um, and then it was like buy a flat, right? And everyone's kind of got a why at the time. And then it became pay for an expensive wedding, which, which you know, was, was also wonderful. But it um, it was just about understanding that every time... You did a new business meeting, there was a there's a conversion rate that you could expect, that it was a percentage rate you could expect. So if I did 10 new business meetings, I would expect to, that six of those would turn into potential opportunities. And those six opportunities, I would do technical deep dives in, and of those, I would qualify out, and I would be left with four. And those four, I would take to do proof of values in, right? Two of them would be urgent because the pain would be strong now and two of them would be less urgent. So I would nurture those. And then that would give me a pipeline so that I could have two commit deals the next quarter and two upside deals that same quarter. And those two upside deals would then make up my, my following quarter. So what the playbook really enabled us to do was run a business based on leading indicators that enabled us to know based on where we were today, where we would actually finish nine months from now. And so no longer would be we chasing revenue. Revenue just became the byproduct of all the stuff that we were doing today. And we knew that if we kept doing the things that we needed to do today, the new business meetings, the POVs, the, the technical deep dives, all of the leading indicators, we would be wildly successful. And we could reverse engineer that maths into, into the stuff that we needed to get up and do every day.
1: It's, it's, it's interesting that you say that, um, obviously, you wanted to, to completely master that You know, everything that Jeremy and the sales leadership around you were obviously inspiring. Um, So the first two years, obviously, you made President's Club with those remarkable numbers. But then 2015, 2017, your following two years, you were actually globally the number one sales rep, um, hitting 462% of your number,
2: which is just staggering, Well, so technically, so no, I had the number one worldwide sales rep in my team. So um, those two years I'd been promoted um, as a first line manager, which again, terrifying experience, especially when some of those people, you know, are twice your age. (laughs) Um, And there's many, many stories I can tell about that, but uh, what I'm most proud of is is their achievements right of of you know having the world number one field sales rep do 462% and and having also another rep do 345% right and be the number one in EMEA, and then having a, you know a, another rep on 130% and all while while building the team out and i think that for me was was a huge achievement because we were we were kind of splitting and scaling the business you know all the time right so the, the the people were moving out of my team into my team i was hiring new people um but to do that i was really proud of of them because it was what they did and got me what, where i am
0: so why were they so successful luke was it just because you em- empowered them and got them to to be as kind of you know detailed around what needed to be done and and followed in, in your footsteps really
2: it was it was a massive team effort. Is the first thing I'll say, right? So that other people that came into the business, like Steve McCluskey, who also was 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 Blade um, and, uh, and and BMC, and Steve came in and, and he became my boss as, as VP for Northern Europe. And I think you know I'll, I'll i hope this never changes, but sales is a team sport, right? And you've got to you've got to put the right team on the field. To win the deals. And so I'll never take any of the credit for, for what they've done. But what I what I think I did for them was help them also always make sure they had the right people in the deals, right? Whether it was Jeremy or Steve or me or all three of us, all owning different champions in the campaigns. Right. So when you know when we talk about those kinds of numbers, our average sales price as a company was around a million bucks. And some of those deals we did were in the eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 million dollar range. So, to get those kinds of size deals done, we really needed a huge effort from lots of different people um, and, a, and, a, and a strategy and a plan and i I studied game theory at university alongside you know a lot of other things, but you know I've always been very interested in you know okay, here's where we are today, but like where if we want to be here you know three weeks from now, what are all the moves that go into that right? And we would spend a lot of time trying to reverse engineer our way into where we want to get to or what we need to do. And it was just a lot of communication and strategy and team-based sports and not all chasing the ball right in, in injury time, which is, which is what some sales teams do, unfortunately. Did you hire that team or was that an inherited team? Uh, it was a mix. So um, about 50% of the team was, was the people that I'd hired and about 50% of the team were... Uh, were people I inherited. So you went from
1: no software sales experience to within two years being promoted to be leading and managing teams that were set to, that were closing upwards of ten million dollar deals. Yeah. Wow. That's. I mean, that is it's profound in itself. The fact that you know not only were you kind of mastering it yourself but you're able to kind of pass that on what is it that you think enabled you to make that transition
2: people believing in me right i remember i remember being in the corridor of a of a client in the middle of conducting a series of value interviews and getting the call from steve saying i'm considering you for the regional director job and i i just went silent because (laughs) he'd since hired a bunch of people from BMC that were, had already been part of his team, some of whom were, had been first-line managers. And I just never, ever expected him to take, you know, to look at me and, and consider me for that role, like when they were such an obvious and safe choice. And I asked him, I said, well, why me? He said, well, because it's a meritocracy and you're the top performer. I said, well, I don't know if they'd work for me. And uh, he said, well, they don't have a choice and you're the best there is. So if they, if they don't think they can learn anything from you, then they're the idiots. And I just was so struck by Mm -hmm. the level of confidence and support that he had in me as at the time, you know, 27 year old um, sitting there thinking, wow, like what a responsibility to lead the first team to be the first person other than them responsible for recruiting new talent into the UK. Um, And it was, you know, thanks to Jeremy and Steve's belief in me that they put me in that position and then they continued to support me through it.
0: Wow. And at, at, you know, as you said, 27, probably hiring men and women older than you, how, how was that as a, you know, how did you get those individuals to believe into you and buy into you? Did they all buy into?
2: You? <laughs> well, no, obviously not everyone buys into everyone, right? Yeah. And, and 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 yeah, thank goodness for that. Mm. I I would say it was a painful journey, Ollie. You know, um, I'm sure as, as when you got when you guys started out for the first time, you, you know that you've you've all hired bunches of people as well. I'm sure, and not everyone works out. But Jeremy was very honest with me. So when you start doing this, you're gonna have to kiss a lot of frogs, right? And that's part of it, right? You've got to learn. You've got to learn what you don't like and you've got to learn what you like and you've got to learn, you know, who's lying to you and who's not. But, you you know, I was was always counseled to just be myself, right? And that's kind of really all I've ever known how to be. And when I would share my story and people would understand that, that's when people would buy into me because they, they would understand like what I was about. Because it's, you know, it's one thing to say, look, I've, I've been the sales rep at this company for two years and, you know, everyone's making good money here and the product's hot, the market's hot, right? But that actually attracts in some ways the wrong type of people. Yeah. It, it attracts people looking for an easy paycheck, right? Yeah. Not highly intelligent, high character people. And so you've really got to work to to try and find those special, unique entrepreneurial people and for me, that wasn't actually in the end. It was when I, when I met them. It wasn't it wasn't difficult. It was just that aha moment. I remember meeting Natalie Sidwell for the first time, who she was working at um, a finance company selling financial products to the Central European market. And again, just like me, like no one would classically consider her, but her story, her background, just her was so special everything about her was so special as i remember it was um to, i think it was st patrick's day and i called Jeremy. i said if you don't hire her i'm gonna be so mad i'm gonna quit and he was <laughs> like you're not gonna quit but i'll i'll speak to her and uh, and and she was the she was the first person that i hired and and the first woman first woman into the team and um just has gone on to do exceptional things herself but Takes, it takes a lot of work and you've just got to be yourself. Jeremy talks a lot about the three
1: R's, right? Recruitment, um, revenue, and uh, retention. How much training did you have in order for you to be able to kind of execute your own kind of playbook? You're obviously now no longer thinking about yourself. You're obviously thinking about building your business. So
2: what, how much training was there and what did that training look like? It was a lot of training, you know, when you're when you when you're a rep and it's a, a very much a startup environment of, you know, Jeremy's your first line manager, then it was just a lot of on-the-job training, right? There was no big sophisticated sales enablement organizations or anything like that then. Um, but then when we got into a point of scaling out the management team, we would always do quarterly management off-sites, which would always be, you know, two-day events where, It would be a lot of training. Uh, I remember going and sitting in a hotel room in in Amsterdam with him and Steve and a couple of the new managers that had started in Germany. And they kind of downloaded the whole playbook on us. And I remember sitting there going, okay, then, great. And then, you know, then there was the, the next quarter, all the worldwide managers came to London and there was a big pile of resumes. So like, I you know, John McMahon talked about this in, in his podcast with you guys of, you know, getting people to go through the resumes. The awkward part of that story was that my resume was anonymized and put in that pile. <laughs> and, and the majority of people said no to it. <laughs> and so um, it was, but it was served as a great example, right? At the time. Of not of, of, of what not to look for in a, in a resume right and not what not to just look for experience which is what a lot of managers were doing but uh, yeah full credit to 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 them um, they put a huge amount of effort into every quarter training and and you know for me I've taken that and I continue to do that you know on a monthly basis I think that growth and training and enablement and development is what really really great. Reps and leaders that come into sales organisations. what they look for. They want to just get better, right? They want to be masters of their craft. And uh, the training I had there was was world-class.
1: Tell us a little bit about your mindset, right? Because you don't just wake up one minute. I know you've spoken a little bit about the focus and wanting to have some nice shiny things, but there's no way that that's the end, the end of it. So how do you get yourself ready? How do you focus? What are your mantras? Tell us a little bit about that.
2: I was. I thought Ollie was going to be well, the one with the brown leather couch. Take the, that you, question you, to be you're honest, you are beating <laughs> you Ollie to the puncher and you're starting to get deep. Um, <laughs> that's good. I get. I get deep with you guys, and no problem. Um, yeah, it's it's never been about the shiny things. Like I I grew up single mother. Dad was in jail. Right. It was um. It was pretty basic. You know, my mom worked days and nights as a as a nurse. You know, I'd I'd kind of see her when I could see her, and i remember looking at her and just thinking wow like as early as I, as i can remember just like you are either asleep or working right and and you're doing it just to put food on the table and i i remember you know later in my life kind of speaking to my dad as i think it was about like 9 or 10 or something and he takes me out on a on a on a trip one weekend and and i remember saying to him or he asked me the question he said you know, what do you want to be when you're older? I said, you know, I, I really want to be a businessman. I don't, know, I don't, I, I, don't ask me why I I kind of came to that conclusion at that age, but I did, and I remember him turning around and saying, "You're not smart enough or tough enough to be a businessman. What else do you want to be?" And that that that's it. Like that, you know, that's the. Unfortunately, it's a little negative, but um, but I re- I remember that moment, and I will remember that moment forever. And it just has caused me to live a life of I'm just gonna do whatever I put my mind to. And maybe it doesn't work out, but fuck it. Like I'm gonna give it a shot because what's the worst that can happen? Because no one can tell me what I can't be, and no one can tell me what I can't do. And I want everyone around me to think that as well. And it comes from there. Like, and you know, I'm I'm married now, I've got a little kid. I take a lot of, you know, my strength and my energy from, from my wife and my, and my daughter. Um, but I think from a professional context, I get up every day excited to teach my team how to, how to realize their potential. I have so much respect in this world for school teachers. I think it's one of the most underpaid but most important professions in the world. And you think about what they're doing. They're taking our children and they're teaching them to be better human beings for the for the future and like what more noble profession than that and i would like to do my small part there right and so i look back and i think there was a guy in my life that told me i couldn't do something and i showed him and then there was a guy in my life in jeremy that took a chance on me and i felt like i owed him to, to make the most of that chance. And I feel like I, I, I made good on that. And now it's my turn to find people like me and help them because that's how we make the world a better place. Such an incredible
1: thought process. Did, I was going to say, did you have any siblings? Did you have any brothers or sisters? Or were, were you having to be the man? Were you the man of the house?
2: Yeah, I it was, it was. And then my mum remarried uh, when I was uh, 11, 12. And then I actually left home when I was 15. You left home, yeah, yeah, so my um, yeah all 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 amicable, but Mum remarried, nice bloke, um, they had a couple of kids i you know just kind of drifted away from the family and um, I developed in a bit of an obsession with computers, so not only did i did I end up weighing about seventeen stone and living in the attic, playing around with my computers, um, having a fairly traumatic time of school, but I you know, just kind of separated myself away from the family and just kind of went into my own, my own space. Incredible. But you're a
1: child, you're 15.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But you, you know, like, think, think back to, you know, times when, you know, people lived on farms, right. And, the, you know, we didn't have all of what we have today. Like, you know, 15 was, you send, people were sending 15 year old kids into battle in the, in the middle ages, right. It was just, you know, think about all the, all the all the young kids that went off to war right it's it, you just got to grow up when you have got to grow up and and i always always had older friends and like i say my, i don't there, there was never any breakdown in relationship i just i just naturally drifted away from the family and then i'd set up a company and i was making so much money through that at that age that i could afford to pay the rent on the house
0: insane i think it's probably a good time to to step into that point right so you know, looking back on there, and I think we we will come back to App Dynamics, but in so tell us a little bit more about about the business that you set up here, Luke. And so it was a a business where you fix computers and yeah, I mean
2: let's yeah, I'll, I, you know let's just call it out what it was. Like yeah. you know, I, I was I was thirteen. My mum paid you know enough money to send me off on a computer course with a bunch of fifty-year-old blokes. I learned how to you know completely build a computer from scratch, you know, Build, uh, deploy the operating system, fix it. I, I got down to, you know, all the low level information that I would need in order to essentially fix any, any windows computer. And uh, so a stopped having to pay to get my own fixed, <laughs> which is really yeah. her motivations for sending me on that course. But then that, what that turned into is like just bit by bit people in the, in the community started to realize, Oh, there's this kid he can fix computers. So there I was, skating around the neighborhood on my skateboard you know going around charging 50 pounds an hour and just sitting having a cup of tea with a mom who didn't know how to use internet explorer right or downloaded way too much spyware or malware and you know before i knew it like the business was just turning over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds a week and thousands a month and then um i got into the business of selling uh pcs that i would build so i was doing a weekend job at, at uh Comet, for those of you who remember that, right? I was, yeah. like, I was working in the PC section, and I realized, hang on a minute, these things are really expensive and not very good, um, and I can build this same thing here for 150 quid less. And so that's what I started doing. And then I set up a website back in, what was it, 2000, 2001, um, and started an e-commerce business where people could buy, it can configure and buy their computers online, and then they could buy them with like home care packages that I would service. There was a couple of guys... At, at, at school, that would like work with me to go out and do some of the calls. Uh, if people needed, people needed to, you know, need to come out to the house. I go out and set up Wi-Fi networks for people. I'd set up um, you know small offices for people. I would do out of hours, so I'd get home from school. And then I had this this dedicated phone line in my bedroom that rang from 6pm till 6am and anyone could call it. And it was a premium rate line. And then I'd come out for 150 pounds an hour. So I'd just get out of bed and get in my car and go somewhere. Um, and it just, I, then I started, I learned web design. So I started building websites for people. And eventually it was, it was turning over close to a quarter of a million quid a year. And then, then, I, then, it, then, it, then I became ready to go to university and had to make a decision.
0: At 15 (laughs) days, at 15, back in 2001. That is absolutely (laughs) incredible, Luke. Um, And again, making huge sacrifices, right? Um,
1: Just to bring a bit of context here, because Ollie and I, when we were kind of looking at your background, Luke, people, I don't know whether you realise, this is the time when we were, you know, pissing our parents off because it's 56K, um, you know, dial up modems and you know it wasn't as you know computers and stuff wasn't as prominent we just about had mobile phones you know this was just at the beginning of this so it's it's really really entrepreneurial because it was so ahead of probably what a lot of other 15 year olds were even thinking about that at that time
2: yeah It it was a lot about survival as well though right like you know you if you want to go out on your own you know, I knew I needed to make money. I, you know, I was making five pounds a week mowing a lawn. I was making you know three pound fifty a week doing a paper round. I was like, hang on a minute, I can make fifty pounds an hour doing this. Um, great, you know, I can get out of home. Great, great, I can, I can buy a car. Great, you know, my, my parents didn't have a lot, so that was it. Wasn't really a choice in my mind.
0: Wow. So you've. Okay, so at that point in 2006, was that after you graduated in 2008, didn't you? Yeah. Graduated in 2008. So you started a job at Sonics Communications in 2006. So you were working part-time, full-time whilst at university? Part-time, best-
2: yeah. That was just, the, that was, yeah, you know, I, I was the usual. I had a bar job at university. You know, I was, was trying, I, I, that that was a that was a retail sales job and, you know, selling computers and and tvs and things like that for a, yep. a sony sony distributor it was what, whatever i could you know scrape together but my my I, I ended up becoming the president of the snow sports club at, at uh, university which actually sort of dominated a huge amount of my my time because awesome. you know, we, we had we we had a mission to grow that thing so it was they, they yeah, everything everything was just a part-time job at university while i was studying incredible
1: why did you want to go to university? You know, a lot of people in your position would have just stuck to it and thought, I can do something. What was it that pulled you to university
2: at that point? And no no offense to any of, of your listeners from Bolton, but have you ever been to Bolton? <laughs> no, <laughs> I <no>. do <don't> <laughs> That
0: probably says a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I just, it was about, it was, you know, I always knew there was a big world out there, right? And that, Unfortunately, like, you know, you grew up in the North, you you realize everyone, everyone in the North hates everyone in the South. And you're like, why? And and then you kind of realize it's like, oh, OK, there's because there's more down there. Right. And so um, I was kind of really a, a point of, well, do I just stay here and this is kind of what I do and this is what I am forever? And I I don't know, I wasn't particularly con- conscious of it, but I'd already started to develop a fascination with companies like Microsoft, through doing that right I was like starting to really understand the power of a company like microsoft or the power of a company like google as they like they were just starting out google at the time um but i was already starting to get really interested in like the economics of the web and the dot-com crash and just happened and i was like why did all of this happen and i was really young so it didn't all make a lot of sense but i started to learn about the stock market and i was like i just need to get closer to that right because i'm not going to be Anywhere close to it, if I stay here and do what I'm doing, and I and I I always knew like going to university, getting a degree was kind of part of the rite of passage. It was sort of the expectation my mum would set with me, and you know, I was like, you know, if you can, please go, you know, work towards university. And then I developed, a, you know, started to develop a real interest in robotics uh, through my last year of, of school. So I went to a, like a sixth form college, and I studied automation there. And when I was starting to think about what I wanted to study, I, I really gravitated towards the field of artificial intelligence and I really gravitated towards the field of robotics. So the degree I studied was um, a Bachelor's of Science in artificial intelligence and cybernetics with uh, Mandarin Chinese on the side.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to laugh at that, but you, you're studying to what is quite complex... Um, degrees there, and you're gonna throw Mandarin in the side. That's just again incredible, Luke. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, sorry, Luke. I mean,
1: no, I was just gonna say, and then obviously, um, you know, fresh out of university, why
2: sales?
0: Well, first of all, he, he, recruitment, he was. Yeah.
2: So that was my, that was another un- university job. Right. So right. yeah, there, there, there I am. Right. Like my first time in an office, I put my tie on and I'm in my final year and was super excited. I got a job as a resourcer on uh, Thames Valley park in Reading and I'm running down there and what are they doing? And it's software sales recruitment. Right. And, uh, it's this little office and it was definitely the little, little boiler room and I have my whiteboard behind me and, uh, annoyingly I told my housemate about this job that I'd got that was paying really good money and he went and applied and he also got a job as a resourcer and they sat him opposite me. And he was like, I liked this guy, but he was kind of like my also my, my rival a little bit. Like we were very similar. Um, And so we would sit opposite each other every day, just grinding the phone, looking for candidates, like great candidates. Like, you know, every time we booked one home with one of the senior recruiters, it was another point on the board and every day, all day, um, and I remember being like so sick one day because I come back from Glastonbury and and they were like, you know, you haven't come to work for two days, you're out. And so I just, that ne- that next day, I just dragged myself out of bed, like white as a sheet and just put my tie on, went and sat in my seat and just called and called and called until the MD came in at like seven o'clock at night. It was like, you can have your job back. But um, long, long story short was I just, I looked at the world of software sales and I thought, these guys are making bank. Like that is that is good times, right? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that I met as I was booking them in to see these recruiters, I didn't think they were very good. And so I just thought, oh well, that's gotta be that's gotta be what I've got to go do, right? Like I haven't seen any other job. Like some of the most highly paid PhD qualified engineers that were coming out of my degree program were getting a third to a quarter of what these guys were making. Yeah. Was it just the money? No, but in a way, when you're that young and you know, you're 20 years old, it's like what you earn straight out of university is kind of a validation of, okay, I've, I've made it. I think the other big appeal for it was it, it kept me immersed in technology. Like one of the things you can do when you're in, in technology sales is you can, you can kind of nerd out a bit on the subject matter, and that mattered to me. The, it was 2008 when I graduated as well. It was a pretty, pretty tragic time in the world, and you know, I'm sure you guys remember, yeah. and uh, there weren't a lot of jobs flying around, right? So I, I applied to all the big graduate schemes, Google, Microsoft, IBM, Cisco, HP, because I thought, all right, a corporate coaching graduate program can really give me some great grounding here it's a safe environment you know they're going to invest in my learning and my development and i'll learn the ropes about what it what it means to do enterprise sales and uh of, of all the programs actually cisco's program was based in amsterdam and the, and it, the way it was advertised was you come in here we'll train you for nine months we'll invest over three hundred thousand euros in you and then we'll put you straight in the field after your program and no one else was offering that. Like I got the job at Google, but that was to go in basically be, you know, an SDR an account manager in Dublin um, with training on the side and work your way up. So, so Cisco became the, the obvious choice. Plus, you know, living in Amsterdam straight out of university didn't hurt.
0: No, I can imagine. So quickly moved up the ranks at Cisco inside account manager, then became product sales specialist with data center and virtualization which was a total career of about three and a half years at Cisco. Um, then IBM, IBM for a year and a half.
2: Yeah. So, you know, again, what I hope with this podcast is that anyone that's listening to it will, will avoid making the mistakes that I have made and hopefully take, you know, any of what I've said and and, and put it to some use. So, I just worked hard at Cisco and you know, it's not that exciting, right? It just you know, moved up through the team. I gravitated towards software because I saw that's where, where people were actually making good money. And that's why I ended up in the virtualization thing. Cause I saw VMware and VMware was the thing I, I, like. It was just starting to become popular. Virtualization had just, just really, you know, come into the world around 2010. And uh, that's what that team was doing. It was selling products that sat around VMware's portfolio. But I remember uh, I was stuck on a graduate pay band pretty much my whole time there at Cisco, even though I consistently got the number one performance. And I was probably way too arrogant about it looking back, right? I did not treat my boss with the kind of respect that I probably should have done. And you know, anyone that's earlier in their career, I hope you know, they don't make that same mistake. Um, and therefore he wasn't my champion, even though I was his top performer. And so I just basically got, kept getting looked over from promotions. And then I tried to apply for the voluntary redundancy and they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me take it. And so I went to a mentor of mine there that I found, I said, what do I do? He said, you've got to leave. And if you want to stay at Cisco, you've got to leave and you've got to come back again. So go and you know, get what you're worth somewhere else and then figure it out from there. And so that's exactly what I did. And IBM were the highest bidder. Wow. So obviously, IBM.
1: You know, again, we are talking about some consistent. You know, really, really good achievements. How were you able to kind of maintain that performance? You know, constantly throughout your entire your entire career.
2: That's a really good and difficult question, right? I, I think I can very easily trace that back to my time at Ab Dynamics was just really doing what I was told to do. Follow that process and don't quit, right? And there were so many times when I just wanted to quit so badly. and My wife was, or my girlfriend at the time was like, just leave, like you're miserable, like just get out of there, right? Or there was other job offers that were being dangled in front of me. And I just, I think one thing to just trust in a process and do it, Right. If somebody says A plus B plus C plus D plus E plus F equals success, then don't skip C. Right? Don't do F your way. Do it the way you've been taught. And when you're doing it, no matter how hard it gets, don't quit. Right. Like if I if I think about the things that I've been able to do, it's really just been as simple as that, guys. Like just keep going. Right? Just keep swimming, to quote Dory from Finding Nemo. And, and <laughs> you can tell you're just.
0: Kids, like. <laughs> that,
2: that, that came from working weekend jobs at Comet, actually, with, with find, Finding Nemo and repeat every day. Um, but that's it, guys. Like, I, I just feel like a big part of the reason is because I didn't give up. And in the end, it worked out right whether it was because i ended up getting to work on an account that somebody else wasn't doing a good job of that i would have had no idea that somebody would have given given me that chance but because i didn't quit and because i knew people knew i could be depended on and that i was going to be here they would give me those chances and i and i remember one of my really good friends was a colleague at Amp dynamics in that first uh, like those first two years and he was working on an account and my boss steve called him into his office and said, I'm taking this account off you and giving it to Luke. And that account ended up being the account that did, you know, 200 plus percent of my number. And I didn't know that was going to happen to me, but I just, just kept doing what I was doing up until that point. Um, so, well, I, 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 yeah, I think it's as simple as trust trust in the plan and the process and and don't ever give up.
1: Love that. Love that. What was the big difference in your opinion between, you know, the biggest difference between AppDynamics, IBM and Cisco? You know, if you were to kind of summarize that. People.
2: Simple. Simple. You know, people that want to work in environments like AppDynamics attract other people like them. And, and, and those kinds of ambitious, fearless, intelligent, coachable, humble brilliant entrepreneurial people they want to work with each other right and and people that are looking for a lot of balance and that are looking for a, you know a steady paycheck and that are looking for you know uh, minimal disruption and minimal change they also want to work together and that's what happens and that's why big organizations end up with cultures like that and actually those big organizations are quite happy with that because they're so difficult to run at that scale, you can model an entire revenue business for a company like IBM on 70% quota achievement or less. As long as you know what you've got, right? But when you put one app D style person in an environment like that, then it's really disruptive. And that's, that's the situation I've been in. Those first five years, I look back, it was really disruptive. And it, and it got that way towards the end of the, and dynamics journey as Cisco started to come closer and closer in after the acquisition.
1: Yeah. So, what is it about that environment which allows people with intelligence, character, coachability to really thrive? You know, I know you've just said to people, but there has to be more structure around that to enable that to really give it the oxygen it needs. To thrive. So, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about what, what you think the elements are that, that it needs for that to, to happen?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a great question. I think that taking the limiters off, right? If you think about, you know, we, we've probably all owned cars, right? They've got rev limiters, right? Allowing people to, to go beyond uh, any set definition, right? So, one big mistake that big companies make is they create very rigid comp plans. So when, you, when you're looking for people to go that extra mile in sales organizations, you've got to give them a reason to do so. And if you're going to cap them at a certain percentage, right, or you're going to create a compensation arrangement that has so many constraints, then all they're going to do is they're going to spend their time trying to game that plan. But if you make it simple and you make it merit-based, and it's about the more I put in, the more I get out, then, then people will just thrive. They'll, they'll, they'll do their thing, right? And if you give them the right training and the right mentoring, I think people can achieve things that they didn't think they were possible of. That's what happened to me. A, a part of it, is, as well as being very adaptable. So, as a leader, I think it's really important that you aren't rigid in your plans. And knowing that when you're in a high growth hyperscale environment like that you've got to change. So one of the things that we, we did regularly in App Dynamics was you know, it was always that I owned the accounts in the UK, even when I had a team of 24 people. And if, if I had an important account with a rep who wasn't doing anything with it or who wasn't doing a good enough job, I'd give them a chance. And if they then squandered that chance, that account went to somebody else and it went there quickly, right? We wouldn't wait until the fiscal year was done because by then you might have lost it to your competitor. And so you've got to give people the opportunity, right, to work for the reward. And that's why I truly believe in creating cultures that are a meritocracy, because if someone's going to put in the work, why wouldn't I give them somebody else's account who doesn't deserve it as much as them? So I think like leaders that are adaptable and that are willing to change and kind of go back on the plans that they make and 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 acknowledge that. That perfect plan that they spent all this time presenting to the board isn't necessarily the the, the right plan a hundred percent of the time like you've got to be able to change you've got to be able to adapt
1: so how much of that have you are you now taking with you to in, at instabase? Um, what is it you're really really kind of focusing on and what what, what from those learnings are you kind of trying to to, to adjust and, and, and adapt? and leave behind
2: yeah so um i'll start with the geeky stuff first um so you know we had a little laugh over my ridiculous degree right ollie so you know this this obsession with science and process and mathematics and engineering is is like that's that's pretty hardwired in me that's where i came from right um so with the degree in ai and cybernetics like the, the, like the cybernetics definition is really interesting people think cybernetics is at cyborgs it's not actually it's it's the science of this is really boring i apologize the science of communications and automatic control systems in both machines and living things okay so what does that mean so like there's feedback loops that exist in the world right like everything everything kind of has a feedback loop it has a process it has a cycle Um, you know, when we, when we hear a noise, we might, we might jump out of the way, right? That's like a feedback loop that's occurring in, in us, in, in humans in living things. And so my vision here is to take all of this experience that I've got and learn along the way, the playbooks, all the endless training and to codify every element of selling. So McMahon did it right. Like you guys interviewed him. He he took what was uh, he was it was kind of around him from the leaders that that brought him in there and he codified it in the first instance and then the the 33 CXOs that you profile right they then took that and then they kind of made it theirs and what I want to do because Jeremy had a degree in English not in cybernetics is to codify every element of selling into like a formula that it's so flawless that any intelligent and coachable individual, regardless of their experience, just like me, can thrive in that. Where it really is like a piece a piece of maths that they can look at and say, like, not just A through F equals success, but like, what is A? And what are all the subcomponents of A that I need to do to be great, right? And do all of that in a, in a way where I, I've dispelled this art into, into such a science that, I can create this elite sales force without just having to hire, you know, lions or anything like that. Just brilliant, brilliant determined people that can learn to take this playbook that no one has ever been able to break down to that level and build an unimaginably elite and consistent and challenging and engaging sales force who just obsess about the success of their champions. Like the one thing that turns me off in my hiring process is when I ever meet anyone that is really just coming at this from a selfish motivation, and that's all there really is to it, I'm, I'm kind of done. Because it doesn't just say to me, like all you care about is money. It also says like, that's the way you're gonna treat your customers. You're gonna do a deal and you're gonna move on. And that's not what I want. I want people to obsess about the success of the champions that do their job for them, right? This day and age, we're not selling software. Our champions are selling software, and it's our job to make our champions successful. That's what we're doing. How, how far are you down the line of building that
1: um, that that code?
2: Well, I'm, I'm, it's it's my work in progress for sure. You know, I've, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm assembling some um, really bright people, you know, around me to to help me with it, and uh, we'll be doing a lot of experimentation. And uh, I've definitely got some modeling in mind and, and, you know, a technological vision for it as well. And, you know, no more will be doing emails on a Friday night or spreadsheets on a Sunday morning. This stuff should live in systems of engagement. We can't be running out there selling some of the most sophisticated technology on the planet and being, you know, spreadsheet driven in the background.
1: So if you were to summarize, why should someone come and work for you at uh,
2: Instabase? What would you say? I will obsess about their development. I, I will give them every single opportunity that I was given. I will give them every single connection to the world of venture capital that I was given. I will give them all of the training that I was given. I will hold them to the standard that I was held to. And I will make sure I will make it my personal duty, never, ever, ever to lower the bar by only ever hiring people as good, if not as, if not better than them, so that they can continue to grow and be excellent every single day.
0: Oh, can I have a job? He's <laughs> <laughs> no, kidding. Um, no, it's an incredible, for and I think. You know, it leads nicely on to kind of a bit more understanding around um, the Revenue Collective, which is what you've got um, involved with now, which is a really interesting group. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, So the story was, I moved to Toronto. I don't know anyone other than my wife, who's from here. Uh, We have a baby. I have left all my mates behind. And I meet up with a guy who's a friend of a friend and, uh, with having a beer, this is back when you could do that. And I'm like, Hey, I'm new. And he's like, yeah, cool. I, I actually, he just moved back from London as well. And we're both in, we're both sales leaders. And I said to him, you know, this has been great. Like I've really Appreciated the opportunity just to kind of talk about my challenges as a sales leader and and like the kinds of things that I'm going through. And you know, at at that point, I was running a pretty big business, 150 million dollar business with you know many, many, many people, 54 reps. And you know, he was running a smaller team, but we were still sharing stories that were relevant about negotiating quotas and setting comp plans and you know all the things that sales leaders have to go through. And one of the things that was really obvious to me and i learned was that actually sales leadership can be quite lonely it's um it's quite competitive so when there are other sales leaders at your level you tend not to collaborate with them inside your own company because you're kind of trying to rise above them um you also tend not to collaborate too many with your direct like competition because they're you're recruiting the same people right so like at the time if i'd have gone and you know and i did and i'd met up with a couple of guys from like mongo for example and snowflake and like but we were all fishing in a similar talent pool right and so it was also a bit awkward and you know we, we sat there me and this guy and we said hey we should set this thing up where like there's a group for sales leaders and we can share all this information and we went off and created all this stuff on whatsapp and then one day I just Googled it because one of the companies I'd set up once I realized after about three weeks of of drawing it all up that actually it just existed already. And I was like, Hey, uh, I've just found this thing called revenue collective. Um, it sounds like exactly what we're talking about. And he was like, yeah, me too. I was like, should we just join that? And he's like, yeah. And so I met the Toronto chapter leader, really nice guy. Took me for lunch guy called Butch and he just made me feel really welcome and told me about the meetups that they would do. And, you know, I went to a bunch of them and I met all these local leaders in Toronto and, you know, just got out of the house as well and got to meet people that were like minded. They're going to tell my story. Um, And it's just been great because, you know, it's not complicated. It's essentially, you know, a, a Slack channel with a few thousand really, really talented, brilliant, Um, sales leaders that are just there, right? And we kind of have it on in the background next to my Insta-based Slack. And if I need a question answered, I'll go to the right channel and I'll ask it. And if somebody else is in there and they've got a question and I've got a bit of spare time, I'll answer it. And, you know, we can do one-to-one networking and we have little virtual coffees, but it's just a really great way to broaden your mind, especially, you know, when I've been, I've been raised in this very rigid McMahon-Duggan world, to just hear a little bit about how other people do it. One of the things that you're obviously trying to champion, Luke, and
1: try and find answers is the um, is kind of the issue of, of kind of diversity and parity, and that kind of thing as well. Um, can I just tell us a little bit about how important that is to you, and, and, and what it is you're thinking about, and and what what the future for that could look like? I
2: think one of the things that bothered me the most when I was working at AppDynamics for those first few years is just how few women were around. Um, you know, there's obviously, we, you know, there's the obvious places that women would, there was a lot of women in the in the marketing organization and, you know, there was a, a handful of women in the inside sales teams, but like in the enterprise team, there's nobody. And I couldn't, I was just like, what, why? Why, is, why are there no women in enterprise software? And i realized not not through anything that you know i particularly did but just through observing other other people in the teams that it was a bit of a lads club and um having you know grown up as a fat kid at school and getting bullied i i just had a bit of a fundamental problem with that and i realized that actually ice you know prioritizing recruitment experience last in the recruitment process is a really great way of solving that problem as long as you don't go out looking for people that are like you and you you change your search parameters so one of the things we stopped looking just at software companies or even at tech companies and then you know found looking in finance there were a lot more really smart women working in finance, and so that's how we met Natalie and then we started to look at you know martech and and other types of, of technologies and other types of careers um to just like tr- like research sales and um you know other other financial services organizations so really just forgetting where they were but you you obviously need some sort of company right to to anchor a search you guys know this you know better than anybody and it was difficult right? But uh, I was fortunate enough to have a few great recruiters around and work with them very closely as partners to really reestablish what we were looking for. And then as soon, it's, it's like a flywheel. As soon as we got Natalie in the team, um, we, we started to naturally attract more women. Um, and then by the time I was the VP of the UK, three out of four of my regional directors were all women, and, and over 50% of my team was women. And, and it just kind of happened that way, right? Because when you start you start breaking the diversity mold in the beginning and you, you just consistently stay focused on intelligence and character and coachability, You're not, you don't have to go out and look for women or people of racial minority. None of that is, is that should come into it. Just go and look for intelligent people, but just stop fishing in the same pond. And that's all we did. And that is really important to me because that's how people get an opportunity in life, right? If we keep fishing in the same ponds, we're going to keep hiring the same people and we're going to end up with the same types of teams.
0: Mm.
2: And we're going to end up with the same types of leaders and it's new leaders that come from those different backgrounds that are diverse. They're the ones that are going to change things because they'll hire different people and then everything will change. And that's what we need to do. And that's, That is important to me.
1: I think that's a really kind of important, uh, really important point that we're going to kind of touch on as as part of the conclusion. But um, I suppose a couple more questions for you. Um, In terms of, obviously you've had to invest a lot of time. We spoke a lot about sacrifice, didn't feel like sacrifices, but you've obviously had to make sacrifices uh, along the way. Are you now getting to kind of, have any of that time back you know are you you know or what do you do in your spare time do you do you get
2: any spare time what can you tell us about luke outside of work oh man um love, love to get out on my bike so i was listening to the mcmahon podcast yesterday while careering around the ravines of toronto so love to mountain bike and when i was in the uk i would be out in wales or the surrey hills love to do that get muddy and just get get a little bit afraid right like anything anything i can do that makes me a little bit afraid like skydiving and you know rock climbing like anything that's a little bit just dangerous and a little bit nerve-wracking i love to do stuff like that i would love to travel um been to uh, been very fortunate to see a lot of countries in the world already um i obviously not traveling right now but my little girl who's 14 months has really changed everything and when I first moved to Toronto, I did the usual North American sales leader thing of just being on a plane every, 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 every day, right? And so my little girl was born and then and there I was, I was off for three days a week, most weeks. And um, thankfully, come come Christmas and then and then, you know, COVID, it's put a stop to that. And it's really given me time to reflect on the fact that actually one of my most important drivers is to be a great dad and be a great husband. And now I'm able to live this life where I I have very strict control over my schedule. I put my little girl to bed in the morning. I give her breakfast. I pick her up in the morning. Sometimes we go to the park and then at six o'clock Eastern time, no matter all the stuff on the West coast that needs to get done, I stop and we have dinner. We go for walks. We go to the park you know, we do whatever, and then the weekends are all about her. So I, I feel very much in control of my day now. From nine till six is is work time, and then I just need to decide about what's important and what's not, and delete and get rid of what's not. So yeah, like my little girl is really important to me, um, and then in a in a non COVID world, just seeing the world is really important to me as well. Yeah, that's lovely. Really,
1: really, um, really beautifully put. So. I suppose the final question we always ask is, um, does the hunter make the unicorn?
2: Well, the irony of that is Instabase was a billion-dollar company before it had a sales team. <laughs> <laughs> so should we just... Uh, we'll just bin the whole series. You just forget it. It's just throw <laughs> it away. something else then. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's sort of this company has broken your entire mold. Yeah. Um, you know, look, because as, as John said, there are... There are the occasional company like Instabase where the technology is so monumental and the market is so huge where they, the investors see it, right? And that people are desperate to put money into it because they know how big it can be. Um, but to grow, to grow a, a company to, you know, beyond a billion, it's impossible to do without Hunters. Impossible. Yeah.
1: Great. So um, I suppose as a, as a way of a kind of a conclusion, just kind of thinking back of everything that we've covered. Um, so obviously our first series was a 33 CXOs. In this series, we're, we're looking at the kind of the evolution and the, and the further iterations. Um, obviously, John McMahon passed his teachings on to Jeremy, who's obviously now passed that on to you and really kind of inspired the next wave. And, and we can already see how that, playbook the evolution of that playbook is evolving and becoming and molding and, and now you're obviously addressing some very key issues around kind of diversity and I think that's the kind of evolution which which is a kind of allowing that to really take place but just going back and reflecting um you know we've spoken a lot about the ice criteria hiring against intelligence character coachability and then the last is actually experience and I think that's a really key component to allow this evolution to happen. Um, and I think there are some misconceptions. I think that when people look at that criteria, they probably, they probably look for privilege. They probably look for you know, people that are, you know, they've just had it easy their whole life and made it to the top because that's what the cream does. And it's because they've come from a place of privilege. But actually... You know, I think what's really touching about your story in particular, Luke, is the fact that you've come from the opposite. You know, you've come from what must have been real hardship, you know, a lot of difficulty being a man of the house um, and almost probably spending a lot of your life looking for yourself. Um, And it wasn't until you got to App D where you probably found yourself. And I think that that was the trigger there's obviously a huge amount of potential, and the ice criteria is designed to enable and trigger that potential. And I think we've seen the full effect of just how powerful that can be when it really works. Because if we were to look at you as a kind of a, you know, as a kind of model case of what can actually happen in the career and how it can pan out, it's your maniacal obsession with being the very best you can mastery being you know really believing in your process a b c d e f will get you the success and i'm going to just focus on having that success and that's really been a perpetual kind of journey which has propelled you to this moment where at 33 you're at the brink of probably becoming a you know sky's the limit but you know, sales leader, at probably one of the most exciting, dynamic, disruptive companies the world has ever seen. And I just think it's been an absolutely fantastic um, interview and really thank you so much for, sh- for taking the time to share it. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to take a lot from it.
2: I really enjoyed it guys. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share the story.
0: Hey, thanks ever so much for your time, Luke. Absolutely fascinating story. And um, yeah, as Simon said, I think our listeners are going to be absolutely blown away by some of the stories. And I think, you know, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to put put a bit of an add and an, an additional one to that conclusion, which is, I think, where is 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 the next part of your journey, Luke? I think where we're going to really see the true magic is where you take what you've learned at such a young age and now develop it into, and you are doing it now, developing it into your own idea and taking that second layer. I think we could even be looking at the next John McMahon. So um, there, there there we go. So, um, and look, as I said, you know, and that's, that, 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 that's, that, that's spoken from, you know, from the heart as well. So um, Luke really is absolute honor and pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you so much for your time again not too kind guys thank you